0: Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. A new book by Wes Davis, American Journey on the Road with Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, and John Burroughs, is about the epic road trips those three men took and their surprising friendship. Their travels profoundly influenced the way Ford, Edison, and Burroughs viewed the world, leading their work into new directions during an historic decade in American history. It's published by W.W. W. Norton and brings Wes Davis to our show now. Welcome.
1: Thank you very much. It's good to be here.
0: I'm sure all of our listeners know who Henry Ford and Thomas Edison were, but perhaps not John Burroughs anymore. Was he famous uh, as a naturalist in the 19th century? How far into the 20th century?
1: Uh, yeah, so uh, when at the time he met Ford, which was in 1912, at the end of 1912, beginning of 1913, uh, he was about 75 years old, so his roots go back uh, into the 19th century. He was very close friend of Walt Whitman's, uh, was a friend of Ralph Waldo Emerson's, and in fact had been so deeply influenced by Emerson that when Burroughs' first major essay appeared in 1886 in the Atlantic Monthly, where things were traditionally published anonymously, it was assumed that it was a work by Emerson. Hmm. Uh, and In fact, it was cataloged uh, and I think remains cataloged in Poole's Index as uh, an essay by Emerson. But uh, by 1912, Burroughs was a very popular writer. Uh, he had a dozen or more books out, and he was particularly loved by school children because uh, his essays, which had to do with the natural world, uh, and with his travels with people like Teddy Roosevelt and John Muir, were thought to be appropriate Uh, reading for children, and so they were incorporated in a series of readers put out by Houghton Mifflin that were used in school systems throughout the country. So wherever Burroughs went in the early 20th century, uh, children would line up to get a look at him.
0: Were uh, Edison and Ford also interested in Ralph Waldo Emerson?
1: Uh, They came to be, I think, under the influence of, of Burroughs. Um at this period in, in Ford's life, so in nineteen twelve, Ford is approaching his fiftieth birthday. Uh he was becoming more and more nostalgic uh for and already boyhood. well
0: known, right? He'd been well known since the nineteenth century as a major inventor. And Edison as well
1: Well, Ford's success had come since nineteen oh eight, really, when he had introduced the Model T. Mm-hmm. Uh and it's by nineteen twelve the Model T was the best selling car in the in the country um edison you're right had been known since uh really 1879 when when uh he developed the electric lamp uh but by this point you know he's he's thought of not just as an inventor but he's one of those figures who sort of lives in the popular imagination as almost an archetype so emerson uh, Edison rather was the uh uh thought of by the public as the smartest man in the country mm-hmm. and the person who could solve any of the country's problems.
0: He also gave us the phonograph and all sorts of other stuff.
1: Uh, that's right. That's right. The technology that gave us motion pictures, for example.
0: When we look at their personalities, should we be surprised by these friendships?
1: Uh, I was surprised, <laughs> oh. I will say that the way I latched onto this story is that I was doing some reading in Burroughs' correspondence. i have been interested in Burroughs for many years, and I came across a letter uh, at the end of 1912 in which Burroughs tells a friend of his that he, um, that he had been in touch with Henry Ford and that Ford of automobile fame, Burroughs says, as if he has to explain who Henry Ford is, is an admirer of his books and wants to send him a Model T. And, you know, I was shocked by this because Burroughs is known as a naturalist and a conservationist, and he's known uh, for his pres- preservation of bird life and study of, of wildlife. And I thought, you know, this is the last thing he would want to do to accept this automobile. But as I looked into it, I found that, you know, he, he did accept this gift, maybe because Ford was at this point one of the most famous men in the country, and Burroughs, I think, wanted to get to know him. Uh, but then I went on to find that they, you know, became fast friends and traveled together and that this eventually incorporated uh, Thomas Edison.
0: But didn't uh, Ford send a Manu Model T after Burroughs wrote an, an article in Atlantic Monthly that the automobile was going to kill the appreciation of nature? What was his argument there?
1: Yeah, that's right. So, uh Burroughs basically argued that the automobile and related technology would bring noise and pollution into the countryside, and at the same time, it would carry us through the landscape too quickly to really absorb the beauty of nature and, uh, you know, the, the sort of lessons of nature. And when Ford saw this, you know, Ford at this time received lots of criticism from lots of people, but I think this really struck home because he had begun reading Burroughs. Uh Clara Ford in nineteen twelve had started to outfit a library uh in the couple's new house and had had bought lots of you know complete runs of people like Charles Dickens and Ralph Waldo Emerson and Burroughs in the hope, I think of sort of nurturing what she saw as her husband's genius. Uh, she she believed in Henry Ford but she also knew that he was not an educated genius, and she thought that uh, the works of these geniuses of the past could help to shape his talent. So Ford begins reading in Burrows, and because of the nostalgia he's experiencing, he's really fixated on birds uh, because his earliest memory, as he records it, has to do with an episode in which his father had come to find Henry when he was about four years old and had led him out into the fields. Of, near the farmhouse where they were living and showed him where a song sparrow had built a nest in this huge fallen oak tree. And Ford, you know, as he was approaching 50, could remember that nest, remember the eggs in it, remember the song of the song sparrow. And so birds for him were this kind of connection to that past. So John Burroughs, who was known uh, throughout the country as John O. Birds because of his own interest in bird life, um, became his favorite writer. So Ford took that criticism from John Burroughs very seriously, uh, but he thought Burroughs was wrong, and he wanted to show him by sending him a Model T and letting him experience uh, the way a Model T could actually carry him out into nature and let him to continue to experience the natural world as he was aging and no longer able to walk the distances he once did.
0: Although there were other automobile manufacturers, wasn't uh the model t the best selling car in history until the volkswagen beetle surpassed it in 1972
1: yeah i think that's right and you know i thought about what it was about the model t that made it so popular and certainly one cynical answer is that it was quite cheap it was you know it was a very affordable vehicle at a time when cars were mostly made uh at the higher end of the market range and you know it took it took a lot of disposable income to buy uh, Packard or uh, a Simplex or something like that. But it's I it's dependable. That, that, yeah, exactly. I think that that's the thing, is that the Model T was both affordable and dependable, um, and it could travel almost anywhere. I mean, there were a lot of jokes about the Model T, you know, and a lot of these jokes had to do with uh, with its sort of cheap construction. So the jokes would say things like, um, uh, how is a Model T like a bathtub, well, you know you need one, but you don't want to be seen in it. uh you know, but there's a whole other line of jokes that had to do with its ability to do anything, so you know thing things about the Model T being able to climb a tree, or in a an article published when this group was traveling through Rutland, Vermont in nineteen sixteen, a reporter said that uh the Model T could climb a church steeple, hmm. so it it was both durable and affordable but also quite capable.
0: And what led them to decide to set out for New England in one of the Model T's?
1: Yeah, so that trip occurred in 1913. Uh, What happened was that Ford, you know, did send Burroughs a Model T at the beginning of that year, along with a man to instruct Burroughs' son in how to operate the car, uh, with the idea that the son could then, at a slower pace, instruct Burroughs himself. Uh, and Burroughs then travels out to Detroit and Dearborn to visit Ford. Ford takes him to the Highland Park plant where the Model T is being produced. And incidentally, where the assembly line, the, the moving assembly process is just coming into being. So Burroughs sees that at a very early stage when at that point only the magneto uh, for the vehicle, which provides the spark that detonates the fuel, uh, was being produced in that way. Uh, But after that, you know, Burroughs wanted to show Ford some of his life. So Ford traveled east to Burroughs' farm up on uh, the Hudson River. And from there, they went up to New England so that Burroughs could show Ford what I think of as the uh, foundries of American literature and philosophy. So he takes Ford to see Ralph Waldo Emerson's house, which has been preserved just as Emerson left it. And they travel out to Walden Pond to see where uh, Henry David Thoreau had lived.
0: And was Edison part of the group by then?
1: Uh, Not at that point. How did he wind
0: up becoming part of the group?
1: uh, Ford and Edison had been acquainted since the 1890s. Uh, Ford actually worked at the Edison Illuminating Plant in Detroit. And this was a job that Ford took uh because he realized at this time he's trying to develop his first internal combustion engine and he realized that in order to do this he needed to learn more about electricity that that first engine he had uh, tested by clamping it to the kitchen sink in the apartment where he and Clara were living and he ran a cable up to the light fixture in the kitchen which was the only electricity source in the apartment and he managed to get the engine running with this very primitive sparking system and it filled the kitchen with smoke Uh, but he knew that he had to have a more sophisticated understanding of electricity in order to make this really uh, work so he quit his job in dearborn i think he was working at a, a machine shop at that point and he goes to detroit and takes this job with the edison illuminating company And although he knew nothing about electricity, he knew a lot about steam engines, which were used to generate electricity at that time. So Ford very quickly rose to the post of of chief engineer so that in 1896, when there's a conference of Edison employees, it's Ford who's chosen to travel to New York uh, and take part in this conference. And it's there someone mentions that, you know, this young engineer is working on uh, an internal combustion automobile and Edison wants to hear about this. So Edison, as you may know, is quite deaf. So the entire room has to sort of shift around so that Ford can come and sit by Edison and shout into his good ear and tell him uh, about this vehicle he's trying to develop. And the two really bonded that uh, Edison was very interested in what, what Ford was doing and encouraged him. And they became friends then, but, uh, it took Burroughs. Uh, to sort of catalyze that friendship and make it uh, sort of more intimate and a closer friendship.
0: Well, it must have been rather exciting because what uh, Ford was doing was creating something that uh, a lot of Americans could afford and it would free them to travel. So that had to be exciting to an awful lot of people.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's right. And, you know, I think that Ford uh, genuinely believed that the automobile would be a kind of gift to the common people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you, it's easy to be cynical about this and to think, well, he was making a lot of money from selling lots of these cars. Um, but I think it sort of went back to his uh, childhood on the farm. He he remembered the isolation of farm life. So he imagined that an affordable vehicle like the Model T would give uh people who lived on farms uh, kind of way out of that isolation. It would allow them to travel into town and get supplies that they needed. Uh, but at the same time, he thought it could be helpful to to urban people. And it's sort of important to remind ourselves that, you know, this is the moment when um, the population of the United States is, for the first time, tipping towards cities, uh, you know, up until this point, the majority of the population had lived on farms or in rural communities. And now, for the first time, uh, m- the majority of the population is showing up in cities. And in certain parts of the country, you know, it's a very high percentage, like in the Northeast. So parking and- was
0: already a problem. <laughs>
1: <laughs> parking was a problem. And, and certainly there were lots of uh, accidents at, at this point.
0: My guest on today's Leonard Page show... Linda Lopate at large. Here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM is Wes Davis, whose latest book is American Journey on the Road with Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, and John Burroughs, published by Norton. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Well, their road trips took them to the 1915 Panama Pacific International Expedition in San Francisco, to the New York Adirondacks, and uh, to the Green Mountains of Vermont, and in 1918, they did an expedition through Southern Appalachia.
1: Yeah, so that's they were right. Run all over, they went. They went all over, and each of these trips, uh, you know, sort of shaped their ideas about what they wanted to do. And I think I so I run through these trips to sort of see the idea building up to that epic trip in 1918 down into the great, great Smoky Mountains. Uh, so you can see, for example, that the trip they make in 1914, which is down to Fort Myers where Edison uh, had a, had a house called Seminole Lodge um, that kind of gives them the, the idea of camping They're They spend a couple of weeks there and at a certain point, Uh, Edison decides that he wants to get everyone out into the Everglades. And so they pack up their things, pile into a couple of cars and start traveling on a road that's sort of heading into the Everglades. But at this point, you know, that's a vast kind of undeveloped swamp land. And so the road quickly runs out and they wind up just on a couple of tracks and then the tracks disappear. So the, the cars are, uh, sort of skimming over these shallow lakes. And the drivers, you know, have no idea when the bottom can drop out of the lake. So they're sort of inching along, hoping that that they don't slip off into an abyss. But they make their way out to a deep water lake uh, in, in the Everglades and set up camp. And at this point, everything goes wrong. A, a huge storm rolls in. Uh, the rain knocks down the tents. They wind up spending the night in these puddles that are quickly deepening into lakes. And, you know, everyone wakes up wet and cold the next morning. And you would think that that would sort of dampen their enthusiasm for camping. But instead, although they did cut that trip short, um, it really planted the idea that this was something they wanted to do more of.
0: Could their timing have been worse? Because World War One had already broken out in Europe, and the influenza pandemic that had claimed thousands of lives abroad was beginning to plague the United States.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, and the war plays an interesting role here, uh, because you know, although so I, I started out sort of talking about my surprise that uh, two people like Ford and Burroughs could wind up friends, since they they come from such uh, a great distance apart, uh, in terms of what they do for a living, if nothing else. Um, the interesting thing is that they they become very close friends, and all three of these men really seem to bond, and they get along very well, but the war turns out to be something that divides them. Mm. and that you know has to do with Ford's initial pacifism and his resistance to preparedness, and then you know, Edison winds up working for the Navy. Uh, for the Naval Consulting Board, and uh, Burroughs, it throughout this period is intensely anti-German and is soaking up all of the war news and uh, cheering on any Allied victories.
0: On the other hand, was Ford kind of inclined to be pro-German by this time, or did that happen later?
1: I don't get the impression from my research that Ford was pro-German at this point, uh, but just that he was skeptical of preparedness because he thought um, this, you know, kind of massive buildup of military might would not prevent the wars reaching the United States, but instead would almost guarantee that the war would spread. Uh, I think he also... Felt, and this charge has been leveled against him or was leveled against him later on, um, I think prob- possibly unfairly, but he felt that many of the people backing preparedness early on in 1915, say, uh, were in fact in a position to profit from that military buildup.
0: Part of uh, his anti Semitism, isn't it? Was he already expressing anti Semitic views?
1: He was beginning to, yeah, and this is something, I mean, I have to say that uh thinking about Ford's anti-Semitism w- was something that made it difficult for me to embark on writing this book because I, I feel that nothing I had read about uh, that element of his character really made much sense of it. I mean, there are very good books about it. Neil Baldwin has a great, great book about this Um Hitler liked him.
0: He he put him. He complimented him in Mein Kampf.
1: Yes, I mean, I think is the only American referred to there. And in fact, there was a a Detroit reporter who traveled to uh, Munich in the nineteen thirties to interview Hitler, and she was surprised to see this hometown figure, Henry Ford, in a portrait Hmm. in uh, in Hitler's office.
0: And wasn't the Leo Frank case much in the news at the time that they were traveling together? That was it a, was. That also exacerbated anti-Semitic attitudes in this country.
1: It, it did. And I mean, straight so this gets at the complexity of, of Henry Ford uh, because that case was very much in the news when Ford, Edison, and Burroughs were in Fort Myers. Uh, it was reported in the local paper there. And so they're following this and Ford, um, was at that point absolutely in agreement with Burroughs and Edison, both of whom felt that Leo Frank had gotten an unfair mm-hmm. hearing in his first trial, which he had, and that he, which he had <laughs> absolutely, and that he deserved a new trial. And at that point, Ford went along with this. But through the course of the period I cover in the book, you see these anti Semitic views, uh, deepening in him and becoming. Uh, more and more uh, sort of aggressive.
0: I wonder how that affected his running of his his Ford Motor Company.
1: Uh, it seems that in hiring, I mean, I, I've seen different accounts of this, but it seems that in hiring, it, it didn't affect him at this early phase. Um, I don't know how that worked out later on. But, you know, there are strange moments. Like So in, in 1915, as Ford is sort of putting forward this uh, anti-preparedness campaign, he starts to attract uh, lots of other peace activists, including uh, Rosika Schwimmer, who was a hung- Hungarian activist who had worked for uh, women's issues and um, for peace. And Ford meets with her to talk about a plan she has to take a delegation to Europe uh, Schwimmer claimed that she had secured communication from leaders of the warring nations, saying that they were ready to negotiate. Uh, and she convinced Ford of this, but as she's talking to him, uh, you know, Schwimmer is herself a Hungarian Jew has lived all over the, the world and worked uh, for peace all over the world. Ford is talking to her and tells her that he knows the cause of the war, which is the international Jew. And, uh, Schwimmer just sort of lets this pass by. And, you know, I don't know what Ford thought of her, but by the end of the meeting, he had actually adopted her plan and he winds up with Schwimmer, uh, leading a delegation to Europe. You know, Ford famously or infamously chartered a Scandinavian American line steamship called the Oscar II and set out from uh, Hoboken. Uh, to sail to Europe and try to bring about peace. And this, you know, this completely fell apart. I mean, even on the voyage over, the peace delegates are fighting amongst themselves and they reach Europe and find that Schwimmer has overstated her uh, involvement with the leaders of, of the warring nations. And Ford winds up slipping out of his hotel in the middle of the night. Uh, this is in in Norway and catching a ship back to the United States. And, you know, that the whole thing falls apart. But so that's a kind of weird moment in which you see the anti-Semitism manifest, and yet you also see him uh, taking an action that doesn't seem to take those views into account.
0: I was thinking about COVID when uh, I I read uh, that you noted by the time Ford Edison Burroughs and Harvey Firestone, the, the tire industrialists, set out on their camping trip in August 1919, the Spanish flu pandemic had killed nearly six hundred seventy-five thousand Americans. Now, weren't they concerned about their own safety?
1: It doesn't seem that they were. I mean, they do talk about the flu, and in fact, even in the nineteen eighteen trip, uh, there's some discussion of the influenza uh, epidemic because just the day after, four, uh, sorry, the day after Burroughs and Edison set out from. Uh, West Orange, New Jersey, to start that trip, the New York Times reported on a Norwegian steamship that had arrived in port in New York with several cases of influenza aboard. And, you know, at that point, public health officials are saying, this is not something that can take hold here. They, you know, they argue that it has to do with poor nutrition, and that's why it's ripping through through Europe. I mean, of course, all of this turns out to be false uh you know but so already in 1918 there are stories in the United States of the influenza in Europe and it's beginning uh to take hold here but by 1919 you know it's 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 definitely underway and uh this group has a very strange conversation about it um Thomas Edison who we think of as an incredibly rational and kind of scientific figure argued around the campfire on that trip that uh, the influenza m- had reached the, the earth because the earth had passed through a cloud of cosmic benzol vapor wow and uh, you know this kind of goes back to some strange theories about the origin of life that he held he felt that uh, life including human life was made up of sort of tiny immortal life units and that these tiny like you know microscopic entities got together to form these aggregate beings that were the the creatures that we you know see and understand to be life and that when a person or an animal dies these entities sort of disaggregate and so he, he one of the things he was puzzled about is whether they maintained a memory in any kind of real way that would preserve the the memory of the life lived but so that trickles into his understanding of, of influenza.
0: When they were on these ships, who was minding the store back at the Ford plant? Was Edsel running the business?
1: Uh, Edsel was involved. There was also someone named James Cousins, who was uh, Ford's general manager. Um, and, the you know, the trips, although there are a number of them, each one lasts only a couple of weeks, so... In a way, they're escaping from that world they were creating for a couple of weeks at, at a time.
0: But all of them, they were leaving the work to other people, weren't they?
1: Uh, I suppose they were. I mean, I mean Edison
0: know. as well. He had people working for him. Did they were yeah. they just competent in taking over? Obviously, Burroughs. Nobody was going to write Burroughs' articles.
1: Right. I think Burroughs is the one who could most continue his work on the road. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Edison, interestingly enough, by 1915, had already turned over the work of his laboratory to some of his employees because he had been recruited by Josephus Daniels, who was the Secretary of the Navy at the time, to uh, put together this naval consulting board that would bring together a lot of scientists, engineers, industrialists, to try to bring the Navy uh, at a time when the fleet was in a really poor condition, uh, bring the Navy into the modern age. uh, Beyond naval gazing. (laughs) Beyond naval gazing. Yes. Uh, Bring the Navy into the modern age and, and sort of overcome a lot of the problems they had been having, not least of which uh, is one that might be on our minds today, which is the detection of, submarines under the surface of the ocean.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. 1847 When skies
1: were dark and gray Two men left bound scarthy Bound for the USA Their names were John
0: Davis. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book American Journey On the Road with Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, and John Burroughs. Um, To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212- 209-2950 during today's show and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's Give and the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Wes Davis. Again, we're talking about his book, American Journey on the Road with Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, John Burroughs, published by W.W. W. Norton. Um didn't each of them call one of their vacations the most memorable one of their lives?
1: Yes, yeah, so that's the uh, the 1918 trip into the Great Smoky Mountains. Uh, and that's a trip that takes them, they meet up in Pittsburgh, uh, because Ford and Firestone, of course, live in the Midwest, uh, so they're traveling in from Firestone's farm in Columbiana, Ohio. Burroughs and uh, Edison live in the east, so they're traveling from Burroughs are from Edison's laboratory in West Orange. They meet up in Pittsburgh and then uh, set out down through the mountains of central Pennsylvania, uh, slice off a a portion of western Maryland, up into the mountains of West Virginia, uh, across into Virginia, and then um, into the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee and North Carolina.
0: Was Edison as interested in observing the natural world as Ford and Burroughs were?
1: He was. uh, Yeah, and in fact, you know, Edison was a really driving force in all of this. He's someone who liked to say that he never took a vacation. But for a man who never took a vacation, he, he was really interested in these vacations. So Edison is the person who got hold of the maps he Wrote to the Geological Survey to get maps of the areas they would be passing through. Uh, he got hold of the Automobile Blue Book, which is this incredibly detailed uh, guidebook for travel in this period. So you have to remember that, you know, this is a moment before any of the kind of roadside culture that we associate with road trips had come into existence. So there's even very little signage outside of uh, cities and, and larger towns. So and finding your way and you was just a big,
0: pass a gas station and it, gas exactly
1: back. right there there wasn't a motel 6 at the at the bottom of the exit ramp. Uh so it took, you know, some preparation to get these trips together and Edison was the one uh who did that and he always rode in the passenger seat of the lead vehicle with maps spread out on his lap and the the uh guidebook open. He chose all the itineraries and he wanted always to get into the roughest territory to get onto the worst roads and this is something that Burroughs uh, sometimes complained about uh and you know he wanted edison wanted to camp in the most remote places and he had a couple of rules for these trips once they got underway Uh, no shaving no bathing and no sleeping indoors Uh, so he he was very much a part of this and was you know very focused on the natural landscapes they passed through
0: How did the cars
1: hold up? Uh, I guess they held up remarkably well, given that automobiles were in their infancy at this time. Uh, But they certainly broke down. And when they broke down, it was often Henry Ford, at this point, you know, among the richest people in America, who had to climb out of the car, crawl underneath, and figure out what was wrong and get things moving again. And there are great instances of this. So on that 1918 trip, on their, their second day, they're approaching this town, small town, Connellsville, Pennsylvania, and they're traveling in a Packard, which was owned by Harvey Firestone Jr. And the Packard breaks down and kind of limps to the side of the road. Ford gets out and takes a look, and he finds that the cooling fan has ripped itself apart and pierced the radiator, so Ford manages to make a quick repair to get them into Connellsville. But even there, and this sort of shows where we are in the history of the road trip, even when they find a garage, the mechanics are unable to repair this car. So Ford starts looking around the garage, taking tools and, and scrap parts off the uh, walls and the work tables uh, and tears into the car again, manages to wire the fan back together solders a patch into the radiator, and within a few hours, they're back on the road. And, you know, so something that might have shut the trip down becomes a kind of highlight of the trip because everyone got to see, you know, one of the world's great engineers or one of the world's great tinkerers at work uh, doing what he did best.
0: Did Ford and Edison see these trips as also an opportunity to observe the, a world that they were helping to create? and would I say John Burroughs, uh, to observe a world that was going to change a lot?
1: I think all of them were interested in the world that was going to change a lot. You know, Ford, uh, Edison, and Firestone, and Burroughs, for that matter, all grew up on farms. Mm -hmm. And they were all sort of very attached to that farm life they had known. So on these trips, and particularly the 1918 trip, Uh, They're paying a lot of attention to the farms they pass by, and they often stop and talk to farmers. There's a funny moment when uh, they see a field of oats where a a farmer is working, and Ford has the party stop, and they get out, and Ford wants to harvest some of the oats himself. So he takes a scythe and begins uh, sort of cradling these oats. And characteristically, Ford then turns that into a contest and challenges all the others Um, to, you know, see how many oats they can, they can harvest. And so they're all out there harvesting this farmer's oats. And I imagine him scratching his head, you know, thinking that these millionaires are now doing his morning work for fun. Yes.
0: He didn't consider it fun.
1: Uh, Not for him, no. And so, but I think it really, you know, it played into their nostalgia. But at the same time, they were forward looking, uh, in the sense that, uh, so another kind of theme of that 1918 trip is that they became fascinated with these abandoned grist mills that they would they would see along the roadside and again Ford would always call a stop when he came to these and everyone would get out and sort of, you know, climb around the mill, climb up on the uh, the water wheel. And in fact, one of the most iconic photos of that trip shows the four of them perched on this huge overshot water wheel of a grist mill in a place called Lead Mine West uh, Lead Mine Virginia. Uh and so, you know, at first it seems like this is just something they're interested in, but it begins to happen so frequently that in, in writing about it I almost became self-conscious like it's, you know, there're too many mills turning up. But as it turned out, Ford Ford's mind was working as he was looking at these and he's begins calculating how much energy He could harvest from these wheels if they were reactivated and by the end of the trip he's come up with a a plan to establish what he comes to call village industries plants these kind of small factories that he builds in abandoned mills he takes advantage of water power to run the factories and he has each one produce you know just a, a single part maybe a valve for the model t or a particular kind of fastener And this decentralizes his production, but it allows him to put these plants in rural areas where they can be a benefit to farmers. His idea is that these plants can employ farmers in the off-season and give them an income so that they don't have to depend solely on, you know, the declining incomes from their farms. And this idea actually takes off. And by the uh, 1930s, Ford has constructed, depending on how you define them uh, between 20 and 30 of these plants. And during the Great Depression, when many of them opened, they really did extend a lifeline to a number of uh, of rural farming communities.
0: My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Wes Davis. We're talking about his book, American Journey on the Road with Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, and John Burroughs, published by W. W. Norton and Company. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. So you're saying that these chips push their work into new directions?
1: That's right. I mean, so that's one example. Uh, another one which we may want to talk about has to do with the interest uh, Ford and uh, Firestone and Edison all took in rubber later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we could just flash back briefly to that first trip up to Concord, Massachusetts. Um, so I mentioned that Burroughs takes Ford to see Emerson's house and see Walden Pond. And when Ford comes back from that trip, he begins reading Emerson. He, he writes to a friend and says that Burroughs on that trip had, had uh, allowed him to know Emerson. And so now he takes an interest in Emerson's uh, writing. And in particular, yeah. uh, he becomes fascinated by the essay Compensation, in which Emerson is sort of thinking about, um, uh, at a kind of spiritual level, how behavior is rewarded in life, or uh, or as Christianity would maintain in the afterlife. Uh, but also, just on a very practical level, how, how to conduct your uh, affairs in a fair and equitable way. And Ford really clings to that. And I think that that feeds into his decision just a couple of months later to announce the uh, $5 Mm workday, which is like a revolutionary moment in American labor. Ford is basically doubling the rate uh, normally paid for a day's work. And at the same time, he shrank the day from nine hours to eight hours. And, you know, so it completely changes the way labor worked in this country.
0: Was race a factor in his hiring practices?
1: It doesn't seem to be at that point. Um, And in in fact, uh, gender doesn't seem to have been either. Although I guess at that moment, when he announced the $5 workday at the beginning of uh, 1914, I think women were not included in the $5 plan uh, initially. But within a few months, uh, Ford had a meeting with uh, Woodrow Wilson, in which uh, he told Wilson that he had decided to um bring women into that plan and pay them at the same rate as as men and interestingly uh so ford wants to pay women the same amount and edison um on the 1918 trip uh when they're passing through pittsburgh notices that all of the local papers are complaining about the difficulty of maintaining a labor force in pittsburgh at that time And Pittsburgh is kind of the center of production of war material. So, you know, there's a great industrial machine at work there. And uh, Edison buttonholes a reporter and tells him that he, you know, has a solution to this, which is to hire women, because he has found in his laboratory in New Jersey that women, you know, not only can do an equal job with men, but that in many cases, in some kinds of work, they do the job much better, Work requiring precision is the thing that he thinks uh, they have an advantage in.
0: What about Firestone? Did he start producing higher quality tires as a result of these trips? <laughs>
1: uh, he, you know, because, Firestone they, because
0: they were going on some pretty rough roads, and I'm assuming he, that they that they got flats on them fairly uh, quite frequently. They did.
1: You're right, uh, and in fact, I think if these trips were done by people other than Ford and Firestone, they would have been much more difficult because uh, they had the advantage of having uh, dealerships all over the country. So, you know, Firestone could arrange to pick up replacement tires at, at a Firestone uh, shop in some out of the way place in, in the Appalachian South. Uh, but he did the, I think what came out of these trips for him and it was the biggest thing is that he, became very much focused on finding uh, sources for natural latex. And remember that so World War I is underway. Most of the latex at this time comes from Southeast Asia, and the fear was that uh, things like the U-boat war in the Atlantic um, and were spreading beyond Europe would um, interrupt those supplies. And that would hurt Firestone, who obviously is using a lot of rubber in his production process. Um, But also Ford used rubber in other parts of the Model T. Uh, Edison used uh, rubber in the production of some of his recording media. So they're all interested in rubber. And as they're traveling, especially in 1918, uh, I think Edison sparks this. Edison starts picking up plants and, you know, breaking them apart. And anytime he finds a kind of milky sap, he will run to Burroughs and ask Burroughs, you know, what is this plant? Hmm. Uh, and Burroughs, you know, according to Edison knew every single plant he, he brought him. There was, he could never stump him. And Edison formed the idea that he could extract this latex and use it to form rubber without relying on trees that grew in tropical areas that, you know, latex produced latex that had to be shipped to the United States. Uh, Ford and Firestone uh, latch onto this idea and encourage Edison. But then each of them, after this period of travel with Burroughs and and Edison, wind up approaching rubber. in in another way, Firestone, as you probably know, uh, winds up buying a million acres in Liberia, Mm -hmm. starting a rubber plantation there, which uh, has political issues as the years go on, you know, but but as a rubber rubber production uh, operation is quite successful. Ford buys up uh 3 million I think acres in Brazil and starts a rubber plantation there. That's much less successful. I think because Ford tried to uh treat the labor force there as he treated the labor force in Dearborn, which is to say try to force everyone to adopt sort of middle American values, and, you know, it was already starting to fall apart in Dearborn, and it it certainly didn't work in, uh, in Brazil. Uh, Edison winds up spending the last several years of his life completely focused on this idea of extracting rubber from native plants, uh, and by the end of his life had tested more than 10,000 plants to see if he could uh, could produce rubber from Something like milkweed or goldenrod that just grew naturally uh, in in this environment
0: well Burroughs was twenty five years older than than Ford wasn't he so that's
1: right almost exactly yeah
0: so I'm assuming that this these relationships didn't go on all that long
1: no, that's right so uh, Burroughs died in nineteen twenty one and the the trips continued after that, or that is to say Ford, Ford and,
0: and Edison
1: and Edison and Firestone continued to travel together. And in fact, the trips grew, uh, which I think is maybe why I lost interest in them at that point. Uh, I was very much focused on Burroughs and the way Burroughs allowed us to look at these two figures that we you know, thought we knew so well. So something like Ford's anti-Semitism, I was able to view through Burroughs' eyes uh, and see the way he responded And how responded did he to respond? It.
0: Was uh, he totally shocked or did he kind of tolerate it?
1: He did not tolerate it. And I think that's important because I think sometimes, you know, when people talk about something like that, you know, they will dismiss it as, well, that was in the air at the time. Uh, but that's clearly not the case. I mean, it's not an acceptable answer anyway, but it's not the case uh, because you see Burroughs... Um, really all through the story kind of reacting anytime Ford is railing about, about bankers, which is his initial kind of code word uh, for what he saw as a Jewish financial conspiracy Mm. uh, up until 1919, when Ford is just, you know, openly anti-Semitic, you see Burroughs pushing back against it. uh, And that really comes out in the 1919 trip when they were camped up near Lake Placid and, uh, Ford started sort of blaming uh, Jewish interests for everything, for the for the First World War, uh, for the fact that the Navy didn't adopt all of Edison's proposals when he was working for the the Naval Consulting Board, uh, for what Ford saw as a kind of increase in crime in the wake of the war, and Burroughs uh, says, you know, Ford would even blame an eclipse on the Jews. <laughs> of course. A- and, you know, then Ford starts talking about what he calls the Shylock Jay Gould, uh, who is actually mm-hmm. someone that Burroughs grew up near and, you know, he knew him very well, knew he uh, was Protestant and any of the sort of nefarious practices he used to to uh, create his fortune, you know, had nothing to do with uh, mm-hmm. the kind of uh, anti-Semitic views that Ford was espousing. So you at that point, you see Burroughs pushing back against that. What about influence.
0: Edison? How did he relate to Ford's anti-Semitism?
1: Uh, it's it's less clear with, with Edison, uh, mainly because Edison did not write down his, his mm. reactions as Burroughs did. But the one thing that did allow me a kind of glimpse of what Edison thought of it is that uh, Ford asked each of them to respond to the first issue of the Dearborn Independent, which is where he wound up publishing that series uh called the international jew that you know uh became a book that fed into uh german propaganda later on um and each member of the group sort of responds you know in their in their own way he's not yet publishing that material but edison makes it clear that uh ford if he wants this magazine to succeed needs to focus on the kinds of things he knows uh, and Edison made no bones about the fact that Ford was great at a number of things, but he was also, you know, limited in a lot of ways. Well, and to that up, actually came.
0: Uh, we're near the end. I was going to ask to sum up. Can we say that what happened as a result of these trips was that one of the great naturalists of the 19th century helped the men who invented the modern age reconnect with the natural world and reimagine the world that they were creating?
1: Yeah, I I mean, I think that's exactly right. And I think this group really brought out the best in each of the members. And, you know, in the case of Ford, I think a lot of that had to do with reconnecting him with his rural roots. Um, There was a great moment in the 1918 trip when they're in a very remote place called Narrows, Virginia, and they wake up after a cold night of camping. They've been completely alone. No one has come out to see them. And Burroughs is writing a letter and he sees that Ford is working on this log. He's sort of stripping the bark off. And it turns out that Ford wants every member of the party to sign the log as a souvenir of the trip, uh, which they do. And then Ford inscribes a motto there. Uh, and what he writes is, Your best friend is the one who can bring out the best in you. And I think for Ford, these were the people who did that. And we uh, kind of had-
0: We have to end it there, unfortunately. But thank you so much, Wes Davis. His book, American Journey on the Road with Henry Ford, Thomas Edison and John Burroughs, is published by W.W. Norton. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it.
0: And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes and also Apple and everywhere else you get your podcasts. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at at WBAI.org. A special thanks to Michael Haskins for being our fill-in engineer today. He's just uh, such a great job. Uh, before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support BAI to keep the station coming to you. Uh, we are going through a rough time because of the pandemic, and we are hoping that our listeners who have a means to do so will make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212 209-2950 or by going online to give to wbai.org right now that give and the number 2wbai.org or 212 209-2950 because we need your help To keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lobet at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, American Journey by Wes Davis. So why not make that call right now? 212-209-2950. Go online to to give2wbai.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy for... 10 15 25 a month whatever you're comfortable with for as long as you wish and we'll say thank you it allows us to plan for the future and we'll say thank you for the BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for 10 dollars a month or more but either way i hope you call now because BAI is the only station uh that relies 100% on listener donations in the New York radio dial um and we really need your help. We hope that you can join us again tomorrow when my guest will be David Neward, discussing his new book, The Age of Insurrection, The Radical Rights Assault on American Democracy. We'll see you then.